0: Hey, welcome to The Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. For the next um, four Sundays, or as the next couple of weeks, we lead up to Easter Sunday, which is obviously such a pivotal part of our sort of calendar as Christians, this sort of pivotal moment in the gospel story where Jesus first gives his life on Good Friday on a cross and then is resurrected on Sunday. We're going to be looking at this story and in particular the part of the crucifixion through the four different lenses of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Now, like when we read the Gospels, we know that there's four of them and we know that some of them say, you know, some, have some different stories and have some different characters in them than others. We understand that, you know, there's, there's some difference in them. But we quite often don't really contrast and compare them. And it's quite a fascinating thing to do when we start comparing the Gospels, particularly a certain section. We start to unravel and see what each apostle is specifically trying to say, trying to highlight. Obviously, they're all telling the same story, the same epic story of God coming to earth, giving his life for all of humanity and raising again on the third day. But they each kind of major on different notes, highlight different aspects of who Jesus was and highlight different aspects of his story. So Mark and Matthew... For instance, are strikingly similar. I think I got a picture, a painting up by the Renaissance painter Rubens. You'll see uh, on the far left, you've got Luke, the Apostle Luke, in the middle. You've got an angel in the middle, um, and now you've got a blue screen. But what you did have was Matthew and Mark in the middle. And you'll notice that Matthew is looking to an angel, God's messenger, to sort of, you know, receiving this story. Obviously, this is a little bit extra biblical. This isn't what happened. Um, But it's the idea that he's receiving this story from God, but you'll notice that Mark is actually kind of like whispering to Matthew as well. And what Rubens is actually putting in that painting is the fact that Matthew's gospel is actually very influenced by Mark's. And it's because Mark's gospel is the first one, as far as chronologically, that was written. It was written about 70 AD, And essentially what we then see in Matthew and Luke is a great influence of Mark's gospel in both of them. Um, So I've been given the fun job of comparing Mark and Matthew's crucifixion, which are strikingly similar. So thanks, Mitch. Really appreciate that. Really great task. But it is really interesting because what's fascinating in all of the similarities is the few unique differences the different points that Mark and Matthew are highlighting in their Gospels. And we'll continue to go on to Luke and John as well. I really like the analogy that the Gospels are like cartridges of ink in a printer. Now, sadly, this analogy is already aged because we now have jet printers. But for those of us who remember only a few years ago, most printers had these four cartridges, black, magenta, yellow and cyan. And the idea is... Each of these cartridges add another dimension, another aspect, to the picture which is being printed. I really like this analogy because this is a cool way to look at how the Gospels interact with one another. For instance, we'll go to the next slide. If you printed out a portrait of Jesus in just blue ink, well, yeah, you can make it out. I mean, sure, you can get a pretty good idea of what we're trying to portray, but obviously it's missing some dimensions. And that's kind of what it would be like if we were looking at the story of Jesus through just one gospel. We'd get a really good idea and be able to really tell what it is. But it'd be missing some features. If you added a second gospel, then you start to get a bit more detail. You add a third gospel, you start to get even more. And then finally, the fourth gospel kind of is able to give us this final, clear, fully realized picture of Jesus. So one theme. Mark focuses on, is Jesus as a suffering servant? So I've got a question for you guys this morning. I want to ask you, what does a servant heart look like? All right, what are some answers that come out? Feel free to yell them out if you're brave enough. What does a servant heart look like? Centred on others. Yeah, great. Not focused on yourself, centred on others. Love that, Narelle. Any other thoughts? Gems of wisdom? Willingness. Willingness. Yeah, I like that. Willingness. Maybe one more. Who's got a good one? Caring for people? Yeah, great. So good. And like it's this idea that throughout Mark's gospel, he's actually really focusing On this idea of a suffering servant, but he does it in a really unique way. And let me first just kind of set a little bit of context. I think it's important because we see like Mark and you're like, okay, cool. But some of us may not know who Mark is. That might be kind of an interesting question. Like who is this Mark dude that we're reading about, reading his gospel? So Mark that wrote the gospel of Mark, we're pretty sure, pretty, pretty confident that it was a disciple called, or an apostle rather, called John Mark. So he was a disciple of Simon Peter. So after Jesus ascended to heaven, Obviously, Simon Peter was the rock of the church and continued, and John Mark is one of his disciples. And what's really believed is that as Peter was establishing the church in Rome, John Mark was obviously coming alongside him and would have been hearing the stories, the first hand accounts that Simon Peter was telling, all of the stories, all of the miracles, all of the exorcisms, all of the teachings that Jesus had told. And then what happens in about 64 AD, the Nero, who some of us may know about, was a bit of a psychopath and was kind of persecuting a lot of people, was persecuting Christians. And in 64 AD, Simon Peter is crucified. Now, I think it's just really important as a little asterisk to note, previous historians have maybe majored a little bit on how pointed the persecution of Christians were. Christians were definitely persecuted. There's stories of them being set on fire, attacked by wild animals, crucified, In fact, even just beheading was saved as a kind of really noble way to be persecuted for only people who were Roman citizens, because it's the idea that the pain didn't really last, it was an instantaneous death. And this was a way that Christians who were Roman citizens were shown respect, that they were just beheaded. So there was definitely some real vilification and persecution of Christians during this time. And it's this idea that suddenly the mouthpiece that's been telling all of these stories, Simon Peter, who's the head of the church in Rome, it's now gone. And John Mark goes, we've got to start writing down these stories. We've got to start recording them. And you'll notice in Mark's gospel that Peter is a very present character. Now, what we need to really begin to understand the story that Mark is telling is that it was set in Rome. And this idea of suffering servant was being told to a group of Christians who suddenly their leader... Simon Peter had just been crucified. So not only was there this emphasis for John Mark to be obviously retelling the teachings and the miracles and the stories of Jesus, but also as an encouragement to say, hey guys, yeah, we're being persecuted right now, but you know what? This isn't new news. Literally Jesus died the exact same death as Simon Peter. He was crucified. And a way to reframe Maybe some of the negativity, maybe some of the disillusion, some of the disappointment that these Christians had. I want to quickly uh, check out a video which explains this idea of the suffering servant. But you'll notice that at the start of Mark, he's actually doing something different. He's almost setting us up for a punchline and then something else happens. Let's check out the video.
1: The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John
2: Mark. Now Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans, in fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic King. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God.
1: One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear. It's presenting Jesus as the
2: Messiah. Yes, but... As you are reading through this first half of Mark, you will notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account. It is very strange.
1: Yeah, why keep it a secret?
2: So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus does not want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, who do you all say that I am?
1: And Peter says what everyone's been saying
2: you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But then something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the Messianic King, and it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant. Or, in his words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is
1: startled by this
2: and he rebukes
1: Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus responds,
2: get behind me, Satan, which is really intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them. And every time they respond in confusion and even fear. Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book, where Mark addresses the question
1: of how Jesus becomes the Messianic king. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders, and gets arrested.
2: And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe, like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it is here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that is going on. He says, surely this is the son of God. Which is crazy. It is an enemy who is first putting it all together that Israel's messianic king is the crucified Jesus. That is the structure of the book of Mark.
1: But the book does not end with Jesus dead on the cross.
2: No. So, on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it is empty. And then there is this angel standing there instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away and they do not tell anyone because they are afraid, and that is how the book ends.
1: Which is a really abrupt ending.
2: Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle, and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting for? The Gospel of Mark
0: is like a tadpole right cuz the gospel of mark 41 or 42 times the word euthus, which is a greek word for immediately is used it's like this super action packed story in the first half of it it's going 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 immediately 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 after and you're like whoa jesus is like almost some sort of like 80s action hero in this like gospel it is really action packed mark is not pulling any punches And then it culminates right in the center of his gospel with this meeting that Jesus has with his disciples. And suddenly, the whole thing slows right down. We might go to Mark uh, 8 now. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And this is this moment that this gospel has been working up to, what seems to be at the moment for readers the first time as the climax. You are the Messiah. Well, hold on. Let's just rewind for a second. What does Messiah mean? So what was the expectation that a bunch of Jewish fishermen and tax collectors would have had for a Messiah? Let's look at Genesis 49, 8 to 11. This is the first time that this sort of messianic promise comes up. Um, Jacob is on his deathbed and he's prophesying over his 12 sons. And he gets to the son Judah, who is going to be the line of Judah from who this Messiah is going to come. And this is what he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Who dares to rouse him? And then it continues, the scepter will not depart from Judah. The scepter is something that a king would hold nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nation shall be his. I love this image. He'll tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine. His robes in the blood of grapes. See, the original Jewish people weren't expecting the Messiah's robes to be drenched in their own sacrificial blood on a cross. They were expecting his robes to be drenched with the finest wine, these purple royal robes. But this isn't what Jesus shows them. So let's go back to Mark 8. So Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, because Peter's going, hold on, like, Jesus, like, you're the Messiah. You said yes. All of the disciples are really excited. You're kind of being a bit of a buzzkill right now with all this, like, death. Like, what about the scepter? What about, like, the lion cub? What about this Messiah? Like, we want to know about that Messiah. That's what we've been expecting this whole time. But Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I'm going to be a very different Messiah to what you've been expecting. But when Peter does this, Jesus turns and looks at his disciples and rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. They're interested in what the Messiah would mean for them, to give them power, to give them prestige, to be able to sit on thrones. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angel. See, what Mark suddenly at this center point of his gospel is giving us a dichotomy, right? Of a king and a suffering servant, complete polar opposites, right? Kings don't die on crosses. Kings aren't mocked and scorned and shamed and spat at. But this is the dichotomy that Mark is showing us. Later in uh, Mark's gospel, in the second last chapter, It reads, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns to mock him and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff, like a scepter, and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led led him out to crucify him. The core passage in Mark to summarize this idea of the suffering servant is for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I have a question for you. What does a servant heart look like? Now, thankfully for us today, when Jesus tells us to take up our cross, it's a bit more metaphorical maybe. Thankfully, blessed to be in a country, a time where it is maybe a bit more metaphorical, but wasn't super metaphorical for Peter when in 64 AD he was crucified. So what does it look like to have a servant heart? How can we take up our cross today? Well, maybe it's serving in a ministry of the church. Maybe it's serving someone in need. Maybe it's just being willing to be humble, to even be humiliated sometimes by sharing the good news of hope that Jesus brings because the news is still good. Even though we're told to take up a cross and become a servant, we do this because there's a hope in a future. That's the question I want to leave you guys with this morning. What does it look like to have a servant heart? Let us pray. God, I thank you for the gospel of Mark. I thank you for this tension that Mark shows us of Jesus being a king, but humbling himself on a cross. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts that you would show us how we can be servants. To serve those we love, but also to serve our enemies. To serve those who need us and to serve those with overflowing abundance. God, move in our hearts now. Show us how we can be Servants. Be with us now, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.